This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. We are back with a, another episode of The Comeback Podcast, episode two. I can't believe it. Made it here. I I think maybe that I'm doing episode two. That means I'm an actual podcaster now. I don't know. I'm here with my husband, Jesse Stone. Hello, hello. And Jesse, I'm excited to have him on um, as my second guest because Jesse has a, if you listen to episode one, Jesse has a similar past to mine and a similar experience with coming back to the church. Um, and I, I'm excited to have him share his story. We align so much on so many different principles and just with what we've been through, I think it's really, you know, it's the core thing that anchors our marriage and our testimony. And it's pretty cool to be married to somebody that has a similar experience and whose testimony is founded on similar experiences. And so just excited to have my cute husband join today. I'm excited to be here. We're so blessed. <laughs> Jesse is actually the one that really cheered me on in getting this podcast going. Um, it was an idea of mine for a long time. And I, I felt, I don't know, like I had so much going on. I work full time. I'm a mom, you know, and with everything else and that I have going on, I just was like, Oh, I don't know, but he really encouraged me to follow my prompting to do this podcast. And I'm grateful that, that he did that. So I want to start out with what was your testimony like growing up? What was, what was it like um, for you as a kid? I know your parents, they're, you know, members of the church. They raised you really well, you know, in the gospel. And did you have a strong testimony growing up? Yeah, so growing up, I remember those awful early mornings and late nights when my mom and dad would bring us together as a family and have us do scripture study. It was it was painful as as a young kid. I don't really remember having a a joy for some of the fundamentals of the gospel, reading the scriptures, um, going to church was was tough. It was always hard. I wanted to be out playing baseball or skateboarding or riding my bike, and and it was tough as a youth. Like I'm sure a lot of us, a lot of you out there can relate. However, the one thing that that I remember going back about as far as I can remember, I have always always felt a closeness to Jesus Christ. Always. Um, I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't feel, and, and I, I emphasize the word feel because I'm, I'm not the most intellectual person. I, I try to operate off of feelings and I have always felt close to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, as long as I can remember. And I remember being willing to, to offer and say prayers because I believed 
like I truly believed that Heavenly Father was listening. And so as long as I can remember, I, I believe that I've had a testimony of, of Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. So with that experience and you're having so much faith as a kid, what was it that really led to, you know, the choices that you made that distanced you from the church? Well, in my case, it was really just one night, but it was a culmination of choices over years and years. I remember, you know, when I was in fifth grade, dropped off my buddies out by the fairgrounds in Davis County, found a pack of cigarettes on the side of the road. And I was like, hmm, yeah, let's, let's smoke one of these, you know, always wanted to be a cowboy. I was by the fairgrounds, Marlboro man, he's a cowboy. Let's see, that seems cool. You know, smoked, smoked a, uh, you know, one puff of a cigarette felt awful. And I remember my friends were talking about it at baseball practice that night. And I felt so embarrassed that, that I would do that. I felt embarrassed that Jesse Stone, who I personally felt had a calling to live a higher standard would, would make a choice like that. And, and I felt bad personally, nobody else knew about it, but me, um, I, I didn't feel super great about it, but growing up, in middle school, I started, I, I think the big one was, you know, as a young kid, you, you start to have different desires and appetites. You know, this was right as the internet, you know, they would send you CDs to your house and you could get the internet in your mailbox. And, and I remember it was just, it was, it was pretty innocent at the time, but exploring pornography when I was a young kid and doing things like that, that I knew was wrong but I was curious about, and, and I had been advised and counseled not to view pornography. I remember hearing it in priesthood conference, the priesthood general sessions with my brother and dad and in church. And, and I knew that it was wrong and it was making little choices like that, that allowed the adversary to, to just slightly really kind of insert some of his influence into my life. And that, that is when the dam burst, really, my ninth grade summer. So I want to kind of build up to where you went on your mission. So before you went on your mission, um, obviously, you know, you kind of went downhill after that time period that you're talking about now. You know, how did you, like, clean your life back up in order to go on your mission? Well, that, that was tough. I mean, in between that time, I had... I had my entire high school year. I went to three different high schools, one in, in Utah, one in Arizona, and then I graduated in St. George. And so I moved a lot. Well, I was forced to move uh, based on choices. I was getting in some trouble and, and had to move a lot. The interesting thing was my choices got, got more intense and I was making choices that had more and more severe consequences to them specifically with drugs and alcohol. And I, I got in trouble with the law on multiple occasions with marijuana in high school. That blessing, that, that gift, I look at it as a gift because it, it feels a bit natural to me. And so I was fortunate to always have that as a foundation. And, and although going into to high school and college, that was, you know, my life. The interesting thing was I was making all these bad choices but I go from a high school baseball player to a state championship 
baseball game where I ended up getting noticed by the local college in town, have the game of my life, hit a home run off the scoreboard, like, you know, stereotypical what kids dream about in high school. And the college coach invites me to come play and I get a scholar, full ride scholarship in college. And so my life is progressing during this time. And so it was difficult for me to, to contrast, well, these choices I'm making aren't necessarily hurting me because look, I went from high school, troubled youth. Now I'm in college and I've got a full ride scholarship. So I continue to make these choices that even when I was making them, it was really an underlying condition of, of insecurity, self-doubt, um, self-hate. Uh, I didn't love myself. I was really insecure, even though I had these gifts and these talents. But it was difficult to recognize the consequences to these choices with my life still progressing kind of superficially. Why do you think you, because you had such a strong testimony in the gospel, what do you think it was that led you to do those things that were against the church, you know, the word of wisdom mostly, and, um, you know, and looking at pornography and things like that. What do you think that was that made you feel like that was okay to do, or maybe you didn't feel like it was okay, but led to that despite your testimony? Well, that, that's interesting because I, I didn't, even, even when I was making those choices, I could feel in my heart, my core, my soul, that what I was doing was wrong and that it wasn't right. Um, however, like I said, I had an underlying condition where, where I was insecure. I was self-conscious. I was, I was scared. I, you know, it's interesting. You wouldn't think that because I was the star athlete, you know, parents, members of the bishopric, Relief Society presidency, you know, brother on the track team, you know, like sister in dance, other sisters, a successful nanny across the country. Like by all appearances, we were a great successful family. And so it's like, man, this kid can't have too many problems, but I was hurting inside. And so for me, I didn't make the choice beforehand before the choice was presented. You know, I should have prepared more and said, you know what, when I'm faced with this decision or this decision in this group of friends or that group of friends, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be ready and I'm going to be prepared to say, you know what, guys, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm just not interested. But I was I was pretty insecure and self-conscious and it was kind of a perfect storm. And just curiosity. I wasn't a bad kid. I was nice. I loved people. And I think I was pretty kind and generous to people in general, but it just, it seemed to heal, at least at the time I thought the broken pieces inside me, because it made me, I was more secure. I was more confident when I would, when I would drink alcohol or use these drugs in the beginning. So that's what made it so tough. Like I said, these choices didn't have an immediate impact. Sometimes they do, but they don't always impact you immediately. That's a great, that's a great insight into what you were kind of feeling at that time. So you went on a mission, you prepared for the mission, you went on the mission. What did that look like, um, giving up those things and going on a mission? Yeah, it was pretty, um, uncommon. I think the way I did it, I remember it was my freshman year of college. We won the national championship and, uh, you know, that summer, in that fall is really when, when I came to the decision that, Hey man, I got to put this behind me. Like I know better. 
you know, I wasn't, I wasn't being pressured by my parents. My friends were all leaving on missions, but none of them were pressuring me. You know, I just saw them going and something again in my core, my soul was, was just gently calling me, please come, come serve, come, come help me. And I wanted to, I wanted to serve. I, I was excited about it. I, you know, I was excited about the adventure and the opportunity to meet new culture, new people. And for me, I was drinking one night in the summer after we won the national championship with one of my best friends, Cade Boyer at the time, who's since passed away. And I will never forget sitting in center field at Dixie College, sitting under the pine trees so that we didn't get caught by the police. And he just bore his soul and his testimony about his mission in the Dominican Republic. And, and it just, it broke down every barrier that the adversary tried to put up. And it just, it, I could feel it in my heart that I needed to serve a mission and I wanted to. So I made that decision that day, early that summer that, look, I was going to put in the time. I was going to do what's necessary. Wasn't doing super crazy things at the time. Like I hadn't, wasn't really doing hardcore drugs. I was drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana. Right. And but I, was, I was still being a, a good person. I was still going to church. And, and so I decided, Hey, let's go on a mission. And so I spent the next six months, um, let the coach at the college know, Hey, here's my intention. I'm not going to come back for my sophomore year of college. I'm going to, I'm going to work on becoming worthy to serve a full-time mission. And I want to do this. And so I started working at the St. George airport, fueling helicopters and jets at four in the morning and working with my bishop every day to become worthy. I wanted to, and I tried and I did, I became worthy. Awesome. So you go out on your mission and you're out on your mission for a year and then what happened? Man, my mission was awesome. I was, I thought for sure I was going to get called to, I don't know, Zimbabwe, <laughs> Galali Lolly speak. And like, I thought for sure I was going to speak a language that had just been discovered and I was going to convert new Lamanites that had been discovered in some cave somewhere. And I was going to be, I was going to be a stripling warrior. And I, I just, I knew I was going to be called to some Island somewhere where I had to build a canoe and serve the Lord. And I got called to Des Moines, Iowa. And it was a shock. It was like, huh, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's interesting. You know, that's, that's not what I expected, but Hey, let's, let's get weird. So I did. And I was excited about it. I went to the MTC, I had an incredible, incredible companion in the MTC and was called to Des Moines, Iowa, went out there, my first area, Newton, Iowa, a little just farming community outside of Des Moines. And just fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with the people, the culture. It was different. Every everything a missionary says when they come home. Not every missionary, but I'd say the majority. I loved it. I loved the people, and it was going great. And I did everything I could to be obedient. Everything. And it wasn't until about eleven months in, ten or eleven months in, I had a companion. And this was kind of my difficulty in life that it, it's really 
symbolic or it mirrors my, my choices outside of the mission was he became a really good friend, not just a companion, not just somebody that I was serving with, that I had the mantle to serve the Lord with, but he became a really close friend and he wasn't, he wasn't obedient. He wasn't a bad person, but he didn't want to wake up on time. He didn't want to study his scriptures. You know, let's go attracting, but we're going to start at like 11 o'clock, you know, and, and that was difficult. And the, we, we did that for, you know, a few weeks in our first transfer together and similar to life, like the, the consequences weren't immediate. You know, I, I'll do my own scripture study. We would do a companionship. So I was like, I'll, I'll keep my side of the street clean. And, you know, and I, I just, I wasn't ready for, for what the adversary had, had was waiting to, to tempt me with. And, and it was, it was in a moment of weakness, much like in ninth grade that summer, it wasn't anything crazy that sparked it. It was just a, a few choices here and there that, that really kind of weakened my armor and my protection. And, um, my addiction again, got, got the best of me. And, and this time it was my alcohol addiction that I had in college and high school. And it was just one night late. I made it, made a terrible choice. Uh, we were on a college campus and, and one of the biggest mistakes of my life was, was to follow, to follow that craving that, that, uh, physical appetite, um, to drink. And I drank and I felt so guilty. Um, I, I couldn't stay out there and serve the Lord any longer. And so I went to my mission president and I let him know what my, my difficulty was and my challenges and the choices that I had made. And, and they sent me home. Um, I wanted to stay, but they sent me home. And that was that shattered my soul. So when you get, when you got home from your mission, how did you feel? Did you feel judged by other people? Did people know why you got sent home? Did they know why you came home early? And what was that like to face everybody and kind of go through that experience of coming home for that reason? Yeah, that was, that's awful because we're, we are our biggest critic and I'm sure there were people judging me for sure. I mean, it's, that's just human nature. People judge and they, they make judgments and they pass judgment. You know, one of my favorite quotes is I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. You guys may need to repeat that, but it's, it's really our perception of what we think others think about us becomes our reality. And I thought for sure, everybody hated me. Hey, here's this all-star athlete, full ride scholarship, national championship winner. And he just throws away his gift. And the thing is, that's not, that's not the way people were treating me. That's just how I was treating myself. I really pulled myself away from the gospel in a time when I believe the Lord was just begging me with open arms to stay, to stay close. And I was given an opportunity by an incredible stake president at the time. He offered to let me live in his home for six months. He says, Jesse, let's, let's get you back on a mission. We can do this. And if you stay here, you will go back 
and you will serve a worthy full-time mission. And, and at the time, I didn't take that opportunity. And again, another just major regret in my life. I said, you know what, President, I, I got this. I can do this. And within a couple of days, I think I was out um, partying. How do you feel now about your mission? Do you feel, do you look back on your mission and is it painful? Is it, what's your thoughts now? Yeah, it was for the longest time. I mean, I'm 37 now. I went, I went a year and a half, two years late. So 1920, I was 21 when I went on a mission, you know, so it's been 16 years, 16 or 17 years. And really for the better part of a decade, it wasn't really until about you and I got married, maybe a year into marriage. It was, it was hard. I'd cry at night when I would think about it, if, if they would talk about uh, missionary service in conference or a return missionary came home, occasionally I'd be driving and see the elders and, or sisters on the road and, and I'd break down because in my heart of hearts, I knew that, that I had, you know, kind of a baseball analogy. I mean, I, I dropped the ball, you know, I had an incredible opportunity and it was my choice. It wasn't anybody else's. Um, it was my choice and that was really, really difficult. But the best part about that is when I really, and this kind of comes full circle with this podcast, you know, after my addiction and I got in, into recovery and came back to the church, that's when I realized that like, I am okay. And the Lord has forgiven me. And I was the one who had to forgive myself. The Lord had done that years and years ago. And now the Lord has transformed it into something that, you know, I just saw the missionaries leaving the car wash an hour ago, saw the two elders pulling into the church and it was like, so happy to see him, give him two big thumbs up, always honk at him. And like, I, I look back on my memories now of my mission and I, I cherish the experiences that I did have and, and the people that I did meet. And it, it's a, it's a strength for sure, but it'll, it'll be with me for the rest of my life that, that I didn't serve a full-time mission. What advice would you give to somebody that maybe feels judged because they came home early or because they chose not to serve a mission, even though they still love the church? Yeah, that, that's a great question because no matter what, like you can be a good person. You can be a great person and not serve a mission. You can be a great person and get sent home from a mission. Um, what we have done, the choices we make or have made, don't have to define us. Um, President Nelson just released an incredible post on social media about um, uh, about tags. Uh, Labels. Labels and the labels we place on ourselves and others. And, and the ones that really are, matter and are important are that we are children of Heavenly Father. We are children, spirit children of God. And our brother is Jesus Christ. And that is what is truly important. However, as, as much as I feel that I have been forgiven, I will live the rest of my life wishing that I could have that final year on my mission because it was the greatest experience. It was the greatest one year of, of my life as a single individual before having children. It was the greatest opportunity I had 
And at that time, I was given the ability and the mantle. I was blessed with that to be able to serve and be the hands of God and to serve his children and to see them in a way that Heavenly Father sees them. And that was an incredible, incredible gift. And I would give about anything to go back and to finish my mission. And anybody who who has come home, if you have the choice, go back. Put your selfish needs aside and go back. You won't regret that decision. I know that for certain. And if you're not going to go on a mission, that's okay. But the opportunity is incredible and it will change you not only in this life, but in, in the eternities. And, and I only get half of that change. Tell me a little bit about what your life was like and... In, in athletics. And so when I got back from my mission, when I, when I was sent home, Coach Littlewood from Dixie at the time uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, Jesse, you know, what are your plans? You know, we, we'd love to, to have you back if, if you're planning on staying home. And I said, I am. I'm going to have an operation on my shoulder. I need to get it into, into good health. And that's when I really got into drugs and alcohol. The doctor had given me, or into drugs, excuse me, the doctor had given me a morphine pump. It was a fanny pack for crying out loud. I had this operation up in Davis County. My family's in St. George. I go to live with one of my best friends for really just a few months during rehab, um, physical rehab on my shoulder. I'm in a sling and the doctor gives me a pump with an IV into my, into my arm. And he says, okay, anytime you're feeling pain, push this button. Okay. That's really neat. And I remember sitting down in his basement watching some TV and my shoulder started to ache. And I remember I pushed the button. It was like almost instantly just this rush, this feeling and this numbness, calmness flooded my entire body. It was like, oh my gosh, the pain's gone. And now I actually have some type of desire to, I think I may want to go clean my room or write a letter. You know, it was, it was interesting what it did to my body and my mind, uh, this morphine. And, and long story short, I, I started to push that button 10 times an hour, 20 times an hour. And I ran out of that morphine in two to three days, called the doctor and said, hey, you know, man, my shoulder's just really been hurting me. Um, that's what I was telling myself. But really, I like the feeling that the morphine gave me. He's like, oh, not a problem. We'll come replace it and give you a couple of extras. So it was like, man, Christmas came early. I had a bunch of bottles of morphine to hook onto a fanny pack that I could take with me to the grocery store. That's like, it was incredible. And, and I started using that morphine every day. It was when I woke up, when I went to bed, after lunch, before dinner. It was just, it was a constant. And what I didn't recognize at the time was it, it was a different addiction than, than alcohol. Alcohol became this, this real interesting social addiction um, morphine, this opium became this, this mental addiction where it became, it was much deeper. Um, this was something I would do in, in the quiet of my bedroom, you know, not just going out to a party for the weekend or hanging out on Saturdays. This was something that man to get up and get out of bed to brush my teeth. I, I needed to, to hit that morphine pump a couple times. 
And, and so I didn't recognize what that was doing to me. And it happened super fast. I think it was two weeks, two and a half weeks. And I'd have, I finally run out of the, my supply of morphine doctor says, Hey, unfortunately we can't, we can't fill any more of these, you know, stick to ibuprofen and Tylenol. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Been doing that since I was a little kid, not a problem. And, and I started taking ibuprofen and Tylenol, I think for one day at most woke up the next morning, puking my guts out, shivering shakes in the worst depression I had ever felt in my life. And I didn't know what was going on. I'd never, I had never experienced this type of pain emotionally, physically, mentally, never. And, and a friend of mine at the time had come by, had had a back surgery and he says, Oh, Hey man, well, I've, I've got some of this medication for my back. It's, it's Oxycontin. You should try some of this. And that's when everything changed. Um, I turned to Oxycontin and he told me what I was experiencing was withdrawals from the medication. And at that point, the, the claws were so deep in me that I, I could not get away from that, that opiate addiction. And it, it went on for about two years, but it started in about a month and a half to two months. I couldn't afford Oxycontin. I couldn't get morphine and found out heroin I could get for 10 bucks in downtown Salt Lake. So I started using heroin. Okay, so I'd been using heroin for seven years and I was using heroin and Oxycontin, um, turned to methamphetamine, cocaine, and and it the, the consequences of these choices started to take hold. I lost my scholarship to the baseball team, got kicked out of my house, got kicked out of my my siblings' houses, um, was was arrested, went to jail, and and lost everything. Absolutely lost everything, and realized that the pain. They, they say this a lot in recovery that the pain of the solution or the pain of the problem became greater than the pain of the solution, which is really painful to be honest with yourself. Have to go through the core honest process, withdrawals. Um, rehab, detox, but the pain of the problem did become far greater than the pain of the solution at this point. Okay, so your life is in shambles. What was it that turned things around? And what was it that really made you make a change? So I'd been to multiple rehabs. I'd been, at this point, really before I had finally gotten clean, the first rehab I went to was just some, it was so ghetto. I won't say the name of it, but it was scary. Um, but the gift in this place and how raw it was and how primitive, I was living in a drug house on campus in Southern Utah. And the day I committed to going into rehab, I, I, my parents took me to the baseball field and I went in and told my baseball coach to pull the team together and bawling my eyes out, I went and told the entire baseball team that I was a drug addict and that I had a drug addiction and that I was pulling myself off the baseball team, dropping out of school, giving up my scholarship and going into rehab. Mid-season, I'm the starting center fielder from a national championship team. And this was this was hard. There were a lot of tears shed and that was, that was an incredibly difficult day. Took about two hours to get to rehab. During my intake, uh, a drug enforcement officer called 
called my parents. And at that time, the individual doing the intake at the treatment center said, Mr. Stone, let me speak with this, this individual. And they essentially said, look, we cannot confirm or deny if, if Mr. Stone is here because at that point, I had just admitted myself into treatment, literally minutes into my admission into rehab. I had become protected by these HIPAA laws and I wasn't on site. I didn't have access to these drugs. It, it was a felony amount of drugs we had in this house and, and I was protected. Um, I truly believe that the Lord protected me from that um, because I don't know that I would have survived prison. I'm a big softie. I really am. Um, but I'd, I'd gone into rehab and ended up meeting one of my favorite families on earth. To this day, I just, I cherish and love them and have communication and contact with them, but they're a sheep and turkey farming family um, up in this small community. They showed me what, what love of the Savior was and, and tough love. And I ended up relapsing there in treatment, came back, said that I had gotten healed, went into baseball, didn't get healed, lost, lost my scholarship, got kicked off the baseball team, went to another treatment center, was there for a week, told my parents I was healed. And drug addicts are, are great liars. And we didn't, we didn't know. I mean, my family didn't know. We didn't know what addiction was at this time. We were just getting into it. And at that point was when we really started to understand what addiction was. And my parents became missionaries for the LDS 12-step program. That's where you and I met. I've got my 12-step manual still somewhere around here with your number. It says Ash Bart. I circled it in clouds with a smiley face. And I remember I got your number. I'm like, man, this chick is smoking. You know, like who would have thought I met my future eternal companion in a LDS 12-step meeting. Um, pretty pretty fortunate i was 18 at the time and jesse was 23 and i don't know what i was doing at that meeting i i was you know in the midst of all of my partying and i was like left the meeting when hung out and partied with my friends and went and got high after for sure yeah it was just yeah. like the lord put us in that meeting to meet and that's the only time we met we lived a couple blocks away from each other. Had all the same partying friends. Same and friends, that was the only time our paths crossed. And then five years later is when we reconnected after we were both sober. And yeah, had just gotten sober. And again, so kind of going back to your question, I don't think that it was one scenario. There was one situation that really kind of helped, but it, it was, it was, a decade of pain and suffering and loss and tragedy and near-death experiences on multiple occasions. Um, you know, there was an occasion I was jumped by 10, 10 drug dealers that, that their intent was to kill me um, because I had robbed them of, of their drugs and their money. And I remember I hit a sewer drain for three hours in the middle of the night as they searched back and forth right above me in their jeeps and i could hear their plan and i prayed in sewer gunk for three hours begging heavenly father to protect me and to save my life and he did and it was multiple scenarios and situations that really i think finally 
humbled me enough to say, you know what, Jesse, like you can't do this on your own. You really, you really need help. And I tried help. I tried help from professionals, from doctors, from rehabs, from psychologists. And, and I wasn't getting the help that I needed. And finally I was, I was arrested and facing some serious jail time at this point um, for theft. I would still, still pawn things off so that I could get money for drugs. And, you know, incredible, incredible friends of mine, uh, Morris and Christy, they called the police on me. And I am forever grateful. I'll never forget that night in their house getting arrested, showing up. The police were there, both my parents. And I was arrested and sent to jail. And, and I was facing some, some pretty serious time. And I was in jail for a week, uh, withdrawing from, from drugs, meth, methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin. And I remember the, the judge looked at me and he says, Jesse, he says, this is your last chance. I feel I need to give you one more chance, and this is it. I hope you do something with your life. And... And I was ready. I remember my dad was in there. And before I went to meet with the judge, it was interesting. I was in orange jumpsuit with, I don't know why they had chains on me, but I had chains around my ankles and my waist and my hands, like handcuffs. Like, dude, I'm a, I'm a boy scout. Like I, I served a mission. How could I be in this situation? I remember turning around to my dad and I said, don't bail me out. Whatever you do, don't bail me out. Cause I didn't know what was going to happen but I was ready. I think I was finally ready. Judge let me go. And I remember I left jail that afternoon. It was May 12th. And I remember because it was snowing like crazy. And if anybody knows me, they know that I love the snow. Like, love it. And that was a little message. That was a little tender mercy to me where I knew that Heavenly Father was thinking about me and that things were going to be okay. And that's what did it. I had lost my membership in the church. I wasn't excommunicated in the church, but I was disfellowshipped. I couldn't hold a calling. I couldn't, um, I couldn't pray in church, hold a calling, serve um, in any uh, formal capacities, at least. And that was really hard because I loved the church. I loved the gospel. And um, it was that first rehab um, with, with my friends, um, the Jorgensons, he was actually the father. Todd was, was the bishop who, during that council, I, I had lost fellowship in, um, in the church. And that was really hard. And, and I was disfellowshipped for, I think, six years, seven years. Um, and then it was my um, young Seymour adult bishop there in Midway that, that really helped me back. And I was able to become fellowship again and, and regain my, my temple blessings. Are there any specific experiences that you have had in your life or since you've got sober specifically that you use as kind of an anchor for your testimony? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's lots of them, you know, none of them are, I, I think looking at them through a, a different lens, through the lens of somebody who was hearing the story, it may seem just super profound, but when it happened, when these, circumstances happened they were pretty um they were very um, calm and comforting they weren't profound angelic visitations 
but they were small and simple blessings and tender mercies that happened that showed me that, yeah, Heavenly Father is in the details. Now, things, things aren't always super great. They get really, really hard. Um, but I, I have countless examples that, that I record and that I've kept record of that I can share with my children one day of situations where the Lord has blessed me and I saw God in the details and and I knew that it was God because the Spirit witnessed to me and told me that what was happening was from Heavenly Father. And I mean, one of my favorite scriptures, um, but this is t witnessing, you know, Moroni's about to, to hide up these records because everybody's so wicked. And he says, and when ye shall receive these things, you know, he's, he's speaking about the scriptures here, but I look at it as when you receive scenarios and situations in life that are difficult or hard or questionable, when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom that you should read them, remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam until the time you'll receive them. Look, look how merciful he's been forever. And, and he says, if ye ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's how I understood things that, yeah, I've, I've learned through through primary and Sunday school and priesthood and sacrament meetings and, and general conference. I've, I've learned and been taught, but I've never once taken the advice of, of my parents or, or prophets. It's always been a message that I felt it like I could feel that it was true and that it was right. And that's how I've made my choices. I'll walk into a room and if I feel comfortable, I'll open the next door. And if I feel comfortable there, I'll open the next door and see what's in the next room. And if I feel uncomfortable, I take a step back, course correct, and, and redirect. But the one that really stands out to me is verse 5. And he says, you know, the end of verse 4, and he says, He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, not by man, not by the words in the scriptures, but by the power of the Holy Ghost. And in verse 5, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. And I take that very literal. Um, do I know all things? No. I mean, pretend that I do at times. He does. He pretends yeah, that he knows I've it all. got problems, you know, still working on it. But I believe with all of my heart, that the Holy Ghost can teach us the truth of all things if we are humble and we ask. Now, I'm not going to come here and give you a dissertation on the creation and the fall of Adam and Eve. I can't do that. I'm not that smart. But if somebody tells me that story or I read it, I feel the power of the Holy Ghost and I know without question it is true. What would you say to people that struggle feeling the spirit or they don't have that same witness that you have and you know they maybe want to feel the spirit in that way but they just don't what would you say to them and what advice would you give oh man i'm thinking of my best friend chase Wright. you know he's 
<laughs> he, he's not going to quote any scripture. Probably not going to see him on church on Sunday. He's probably getting a tattoo right now. And the greatest dude on earth. We, He was my sponsor, is my sponsor, and will be my best friend until the day I die. But when I first got into recovery, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I was going to make it. I actually had a couple instances where I was looking to relapse, and I actually ended up meeting President Nukdorf and his wife at the time on a golf course and, and received a really sacred, special moment um, with them where the Lord really, really stepped in and helped me. But Chase Wright, I'll remember sitting on these the rocks of Deer Creek Reservoir in Midway, Utah, fishing. That's always kind of been one of my pastimes. And for the first 35 days of recovery, I remember because I started counting, I didn't catch a fish. And I was... I was upset. I was like, Heavenly Father, I need to catch a fish because I'm sad and I'm hurting right now. This is not easy for me. Help me catch a fish, please. And I couldn't catch a fish. And it was it was every night I was with Chase um, in my early recovery. And the thing this kid just kept saying was, Jesse, just keep casting. Just keep casting. And I would repeat that over and over and over again. Keep casting. Keep casting. I knew fish were there. I had seen them before. I would caught fish before. But in the moment, I was struggling and I wasn't catching fish. And so the, some of the greatest wisdom and advice and counsel of my life was to keep casting. And so to people who may not be feeling the spirit um, or not necessarily understanding where to find it, I would just say keep casting keep trying don't give up heavenly father is there and he is waiting with open arms and we don't always understand his timeline sometimes it takes time sometimes it takes 35 days to catch a fish it may take a few years but he is always there and he is waiting and and if we are patient and we trust in his timeline, there will come a day where we will recognize that he has been there the entire time and, and we will feel it. But it's going to be small and it's going to come in, in small increments. That is so beautiful. And Chase Wright is the most incredible person and his wife, Tara, we love them. Okay, well, this has been so good, and I have heard your story many, many times, but I don't know. I always love hearing it. This and has been fun. I, it has been fun. I've spoken in state conference and haven't been as nervous for that as I was for this <laughs> podcast. This is great. Thank it, yeah. you for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. I think that, you know, for anyone that knows Jesse, he's one of the most spiritual people, and it's really cool to be his wife because oh shucks <laughs> i you know i just it's really special to be able to align with somebody spiritually in that way and um i'm grateful for that but yeah any any last thoughts before we wrap up yeah i think i think anybody who's listening the, the hope is that you can take the message that that I've, I've tried to share and that Ashley is so eloquently um, assisted with and is helping provide in this podcast is that 
that no matter what you've done, where you're at in your life, what you're doing, just know that that you have a Heavenly Father that loves you more than you can comprehend. I've, I've been fortunate to have two children, three children actually, one who, who passed away at birth, that I've been given a glimpse into what Heavenly Father sees in us. And that's just from a temporal, imperfect mind. And I know how much I love my children. And so know that Heavenly Father loves you and that, that you have an older brother, Jesus Christ, that gave up his life for you. And not just for what you've done, but for what you're doing now that may be wrong and what you're going to do because you're going to continue to make mistakes. One of my favorite quotes, I've got a bunch of favorite quotes. You do. The library. I mean, Rocky Balboa. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. End quote. No, it's, <laughs> no, no matter what your dream in life, no matter what your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. Stay positive. Love yourself. Look at the bright side. Look at the silver lining. Be happy. Stay happy. Life is hard, and it's always going to be hard. But the Lord is there to help lift, lift us up and help bear our burdens, and He will reach our reaching. And if you trust that, just... Like I was saying about my buddy Chase, just keep casting. Just don't give up. Don't ever, ever, ever give up. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, There's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.